Welcome back to the Poker Zoo. Who is this? Well, we are back, believe it or not. Uh, you're listening to the Poker Zoo podcast. We've had several weeks of uh, scheduling issues, audio issues, uh, listening to everyone else discuss the great crotch-studying Mike Possel uh, cheating scandal. But uh, we finally put a show together and uh, hope you enjoy it. You can find us at persuadio.nl. All the episodes are there in individual blog posts, and you may leave your feedback, questions, uh, comments about the show. We'd love to hear from you. This week, Persuadio interviews a coaching student, Greg. I think this is the third Greg we've had on the show, so uh, since he is in witness protection, did not want to use his last name, we will refer to him only as Greg number three. So I hope you enjoy the interview between Persuadio and Greg number three. Some say he scoffs at both life and liberty and is vehemently opposed to the pursuit of happiness. We, however, just know him as Persuadio. Welcome back to the Poker Zoo. I've taken several weeks off, sort of in awe of the Mike Postel situation. I didn't think I needed to add to the bombardment of poker media, which is sort of relishing that scenario at the moment. So I'm really pleased to get back to TBR and everything I'm doing here. So I'd like to introduce you to one of my students. His name is Greg. He plays in the Pacific Northwest. We're going to get to know him, sort of go over some hands and maybe some concepts uh, that hopefully everyone will find interesting. So welcome to the podcast, Greg. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Chris. Uh, So how did I meet you? You met me through Luca. Through trouble, in other words. Okay. Yes. You play uh, where exactly? I played the Meadows, Portland Meadows. Uh, I play one, two. Yeah, one of my favorite places, really. And uh, when did you get started in the game? I got started back in the Moneymaker era, though my inspiration was not Moneymaker. I didn't know who he was, but my boss at the time uh, was into poker, played in a home, weekly home tournament. And when we had downtime at work, he started teaching me the game and he invited me to come play in the the weekly tournaments. And I got hooked. I played tournaments, just tournaments for a few years and then started playing one, two cash. Cool. And about what year was that? I want to say that was about, well, I first started about 15 years ago, maybe. Yeah. How often have you played? How, like how serious a player have you been all those years? It's a good question. I've played sort of off and on. I was pretty consistent uh, the first five years or so I was playing. <clears throat> and then I got laid off and I started uh, taking my unemployment checks and going to play one, two every week. Uh, so I was playing a lot. <laughs> Naturally. Yeah. So I was playing a lot while I wasn't uh, working. And then uh, I went back to school and didn't play much uh, until I met Luca. and started playing again and when we both when we both started playing together we were playing 25 cent 50 cent at a sports bar and our games were really similar and then I took another break a few years ago I got married bought a house got some chickens so I took a break from playing and then decided to come back to it and uh, started playing with Luca again and his game had changed so much he had grown so much and become such a better player 
that I was inspired to to try and remake my game as well. Cool. And uh, Luca went through kind of a whole process of learning. What what has been your path to to poker in terms of your poker education? I started off like I think a, a lot of people do back in the day. I started reading books, you know, David Sklansky, Harrington, things like that. Uh, and never really got coaching. When I came back to the game, a red trip, red chip was a big force as was crush live poker. And so I got, it's not exactly coaching. I, I learned through those sites and through the services that they offered. Uh, but really you're the first coach that I've had. Okay. So it hasn't, hopefully it hasn't been too traumatic. You, you've got a moment on air here to, to spill the beans. No, I, I think I'll keep those secrets to myself. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your games because, you know, you probably play weekends mostly. Yeah, mostly weekends. And, and you're playing a one, two, two, five. What, what's the deal? I just play one, two. Okay. And you're looking to move up, no doubt, though. Yes, I would love to move up. Okay. Uh, my primarily, my, sorry, my primary Go ahead. <laughs> restriction is bankroll, though. I'm playing on kind of a thin uh, bankroll. Well, the, the key to a good bankroll is just to keep winning. Then you never have to worry about bankroll. Yes. Are you going to teach me the, the secrets to that at some point? We've been trying. How, how have you been doing since... Uh, for, for listeners, uh, Greg came into my circle a couple months ago. He's taken my Construction 1 and Construction 2 courses, which we need to hear his opinion on, how they've changed. You know, are, you, are you doing well since we've talked about poker? What, what's the deal? Just, just uh, give us the rating right here. It has been harder than I thought it would be to remake my game. Oh, that's an interesting comment. Tell, tell me why or what's going on. Well, results-wise, I think I'm sort of breaking even, but I find myself, particularly in the live games, I find myself reverting back to old habits, bad habits. Mm, okay. So execution. And yeah, I think so. I feel, I feel as though I have a decent grasp on the theory uh, for, for the work that I've done, but uh, the execution has been challenging. And I, part of it is those one, two games are so irrational. <laughs> I get in a, a mode of, of responding to the irrationality and to, and I, like I said, I kind of revert to, to bad habits, probably out of frustration. Okay. Well, you know, you've brought me some hands. You've brought me even some concepts. You're, you're in the middle of improving your game. And you know what happens when you improve your game? Things go a little bit haywire. They always do. It's never completely smooth. So take heart. You're going to be fine. And specifically in terms of the craziness that takes place at places like the Meadows and other, you know, action one-two games, is you've really got to focus on what their range is and just how loose, tight, merged, polarized it is. Qualify it in ways that are going to help you make right decisions. And if you're a very mathematical person, of course, using the percent form 
you know, 15% of hands opened, etc. 8% of hands, three bad. That can be very useful in terms of, you know, just, you know, 30 minutes a day of study and really quantifying what these people are doing so that you can make pretty good decisions against just pure craziness. So you'll get there. Have no fear. Yeah, it makes sense. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, what you're looking at, because unlike a lot of 1-2 players, you have dived right, right into the solver a bit faster than some of my other students, and you had been uh, looking at some things. I'm wondering if we might uh, talk about that a bit. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so what, what did you do? I mean, you've got this cool thing, GTO+. Plus. Um, it's probably completely unnecessary to beat a 1-2 game, but it's going to make you a much stronger player in the long run. And so, you know, what are you doing? Are you just typing in a bunch of numbers? What, give me, your, give me uh, the picture of what happens when Greg opens up GTO+. Plus. All right, I get mesmerized by the pretty colors. <laughs> That's the first thing, yeah. Yeah, and then, I, and then I try and make, set up a solve that makes sense uh, and then really, once I run the solve, I try and figure out why the solver's doing what it's doing. Nice. <laughs> As opposed to, I'm not using it to, uh, you know, I'm not trying to take its lines and apply them to one, two, or anything like that. I'm, I'm trying to look at it at a more conceptual level to help me understand some of the concepts that we've been talking about in the construction class. Because really, I, I would like to crush one too. I, I'm sure I will at some point, but my interest in poker is more about learning and being challenged. So to me, it makes sense to, to get into the solver because it allows me to really uh, use the brain. For sure. Uh, that's that's going to be fine. Uh, let's take a look at one of the files you gave me and maybe we can make some sense of at least part of it and get you on your way. So I'm looking at this one. It looks like R A N A eight Ace of Hearts, six of clubs, five of clubs, which I believe understand uh, is a short for range advantage, neutral advantage. Is that what you're using? Uh, N A is nut advantage. Nut advantage. Okay. All right. Um, so what, I, what I'm happening here? For, what's happening here for the listener is I'm looking at a game tree in a solver. And it looks like we're seeing a board of the ace of hearts, six of clubs, five of clubs. And there's a whole bunch of pretty information. I really have to say GTO Plus, despite what others say, is a lot prettier than PO Solver. But that's not going to get you very far. So let's just sort of talk about what you're seeing here and why this might be useful. Because you're saying you're breaking even, basically. Well, that's good. At least you're breaking even at one two and you've been playing for a long time so clearly you uh you do need some impetus a little help to get you on your way get you off the ground let's take a look at this in terms of helping you construct hands over streets because let's say i'm not talking about you but i'm talking about just any one two player who's just kind of been lost in the game for a long time the solver will help you in the, as things become more and more difficult past the, the very easy way of, of thinking about poker, which is I hit or I miss. 
They help you deal, in other words, in ranges. And we're going to see ranges here, and we're going to see bet sizes, and we're going to see actions throughout a possible series of um, what we'll call nodes, uh, what we'll call the game tree. So on the upper left-hand side of the solver, we see the beginning of the game tree where there's a one, and that stands for the out-of-position player, right? Yes. And it's better check. Um, but let's actually go in to the tree that you set up and see if you're doing yourself any favors. Okay. So if we, if we go to build tree, what I'm going to find out is I'm going to find out what exactly are the, is the abstract or the, the parameters of this solve, right? Yes. So very simple. We've got a screen which says the effective stacks, pot, and rake. We've got a starting pot of 8.5 units. Um, I assume that is going to stand for uh, BBs, including a small blind, perhaps. That's correct. A 4x raise from early position or middle position. Nice. Yes. And you've got uh, the effective stack is 200. And correct for your game, there is no rake because it's a time game. Yes. So that's nice and easy. Pretty sweet. Then we go over to the build decision tree, and there's sort of a basic tab. There's a rebuild tab we don't worry about. And then there's the advanced tab where you've put in your bet sizes. Yes. Okay. So the default bet you've changed from 75 to 50%, or maybe that was already there, I'm not sure. So it looks like you're looking at a, whenever you don't put in a number, you're going to see this sort of what's become to be known as a catch-all sizing of 50% pot. And the reason they call it catch-all is because it's not really polarized. It's not really merged or depolarized, as they say. But it's going to allow you to bet a fairly wide number of combos and will will be used in ambiguous a lot of ambiguous situations and it doesn't really say anything about your range per se except that it's not you're not you're not able to bet your entire range at this size so that's okay um, it's not ideal but it's going to work for getting used to using uh, this tool um, you've given check raises 3x, which is reasonable, maybe a little on the big side for um, short stack games. Uh, but what I want to point out is you've made this tree a little bit more complex than it needs to be. It probably took a while to solve. Yes, and you used a lot of memory. It did. And the reason is on the turn, you have given the in position player after the out-of-position player is checked, you've given him three bet sizings. Yes. You've given him 33, 66, and 125% of the pot. And what I would say to that is, well, a lot of people are just sort of fumbling in the dark, right, to choose a bet size. Would you say that's fair? Oh, absolutely. Okay, so one of the reasons um, some players do so well with the solver and others don't do so well. You know, and the ones who don't do so well are usually just trying to copy or get a, sort of approval for something they did by looking at it, just running a solve and seeing, oh yeah, that's a bet. 
and then they go on their merry way. One of the reasons is they, they don't really have a, a natural understanding or a studied understanding of how bet sizing works. On, on the turn, in position, the in position player has an incentive to be polarized in his betting overall. And the reason is he has the advantage of position. If he bets small, he can be raised off his hand very easily. Um, it doesn't uh, get stacks in, especially after this small bet that you've given him on the flop of only 33% of the pot. So what you're saying to the solver is you're telling it, I want you to look at betting very tiny on the flop, very tiny on the turn, and exposing myself to that check raise when I could have just checked behind. So that isn't going to be a particularly useful bet, I'm going to imagine. In fact, we're going to go into the solve and look in a minute, did it, does the solve like this 33% sizing? And I'm gonna, I'm gonna posit that it doesn't like it at all. And I'm gonna further say that it's making your solve take a long time. Um, so on the turn, while you're learning to do this, what I would suggest you do is choose one or two sizings maximum. That's okay. gonna, and, and you want, you're gonna wanna have them follow, you know, and I know we've only done two months, you know, that only seven total classes together, none of which got too deep into sizing since we were focused on actually moving combos around. But understanding what size you want in advance will help you pick out natural sizing. So let's do it. Uh, let's finish looking at the tree and then zip over and look at what the solver said. And then on the river, you, you, you repeat the same process. You have 33, 66, and 125. That makes somewhat more of a sense on the river to have a small bet, but more out of position than in position. So again, I would urge you to just choose two sizings maximum. And that's really going to not only make this an easier process, it's gonna make be more implementable for you. Um, starting out as a one-two player and worrying about having three different bet sizings on two different streets, for me, sounds pretty awful. Okay. All right. I think it might be useful uh, for the listeners also, if I provide just a little bit of context, I've been curious about range advantage and nut advantage and how they intersect and how they guide primarily in position C betting but also out of position leaning and out of position check raising. So that, that's sort of the idea behind this solve. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because remember, we're going over a six five, which should have, you know, depending on the range you give them, there should be a lot of bets for the in position player on an ace high board, but we'll find out because we're going to look at the ranges also that you provided. Um, and then after that, we'll leap into the solve and see if those bet sizings that we mentioned indeed do make any sense or, you know, maybe they surprise me and uh, the solver loves it. But my fingers are not crossed on that one. All right. Uh, so you gave out of position. That looks like the caller. So it looks like the we'll start with the in position player because I see that this player is uncapped. You've given them about a 12% range. Yeah, 156 and combos. Okay, and it is definitely very condensed to the top. It does have some ace wheels as the bottom, but starts at sevens through aces, some broadways, and then the suited broadways, including 10-9 suited and 9-8 suited. So 
I would imagine you took this from an EP range or you made it up yourself. How'd you arrive at this? Yeah, it's, it's taken from a, an EP range and I did manipulate it so that there would be no two pair, no bottom set, no middle set on that flop. So that the out of position player would have other than top set and top pair, top kicker, the, the out of position player would have a significant nut advantage. Okay, and that's really um, valuable because this somewhat looks to me, it reminds me of really tight EP ranges from, I mean, if you just took out ace-jack and maybe took out those wheels, it would look like a really recommended tight EP range from, I don't know, five, six years ago where you were really, really focused on just the highest equity hands and you would, in fact, miss those those that bottom set coverage but this board yeah this this it's funny you've taken out sixes fives and fours but you do have a little bit of coverage with ace four ace three and ace two so you kind of sneak it in there uh, and then the out of position caller is much wider and we see that he has a capped range he has no aces or kings, not even a weighted combination. No ace-king, no ace-queen suited. His best hand is a weighted queens. So, you know, definitely some protection and definitely on the wider side, 32%. So um, a significant uh, number of combos more, nearly maybe more than three times the combos of the previous of the opener. So he's going to have some trouble in terms of defending this many combos against such a concentrated range. And we should sort of see that in advance, just the very proportion, um, especially facing the 4X open. We can look and see that this is probably too many and he's going to suffer a little bit, um, even though he has these sets and we can we can guess that just by looking at the percentage and seeing what he has to call in order. He's paying a lot, for instance. He's paying, you know, three big blinds or three units to call with hands like ace-deuce, ace-three off, ace-four off, ace-five off. If he's suffering in this configuration, if, you know, if we find out that he's not doing so well, that his EV is low, we can immediately know where to start chopping off some hands and improve this guy's range. Yeah, and this is based on sort of rough approximation of a big blind in my specific Meadows 1-2 game. They love their aces. Well, sure. They're a ma it's a magic card. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we've talked about the ranges. We've, we've looked at the tree, and things start to make a little bit of sense. Um, remember, if we go back to your build tree, it looks like um, if OOP leads out, it's going to be for 50% of the pot, but if in position bets, it's going to be for 33% of the pot. So we're going for more of a range bet under your abstract, which is fine. Um, you could certainly look at this another way and introduce a more polarized bet by saying 66 or 75%, in which case you'll always see less bets. The point is to know what you intend to do. So now let's get into the actual tree itself and start to learn something. So I go up to the upper left and I'm looking at uh, the leads and the checks from out of position. And it looks like 
about 7% leads, which is, you know, fairly normal for a situation like this. If we go to the big graph, you know, <clears throat> what are they? Well, they're just mostly slender, um, slender cuts of, of, of very strong hands, right? Uh, we've got hands like ace five on both offsuit and, and um, suited are betting. We've got a little slice of ace-queen betting, bits of six-five, which is two-pair. That's one of the most common uh, leads. And so if you look at this, you could say, well, one thing, if it's only 6% of the time and I'm going to implement this strategy, I could basically do what the whole time? Check. You could probably check um, and dismiss this strategy. Are you giving up some EV? Uh, yeah, of course, that's why the solver does it. And if you look at these hands, you know, maybe we can figure out why it is that they lead. Um, and that's and that's what you're trying to do, right? You're trying to learn something from the solver. Yes, that's right. So if we look at the majority of the leads, which are um, like 6-5 suited ace and ace-5, um, what are the what is the quality of six five and ace five that say differ from uh, say you know ace six? Interesting question. Yeah, and that's what you, this is the sort of thing you want to look at because for for whatever reason, even though we're never maybe we're never going to implement this strategy, the solver is choosing to lead ace five far more than ace six, and five six way more than ace five, and certainly um, a lot more than ace six. And I would, what I would say, point out to you is that that hand is more vulnerable. It's a value hand for certain. It's betting for value, but it, does, it is not going to stand up. It is not going to retain its equity as well as ace six, which can check can check raise or check call. So you're beginning, you, you, you learn right away by looking at it and just looking at the quality of the hand, something about what the solver is doing. Because even though what I teach is an entirely GTO, a lot of GTO does function on this very, very simple binary plane of denial and protection, uh, denial and reala realization, I mean. And so you're, there's something to think about. Even if you never have a leading strategy, um, a vulnerable hand might make, um, in this case, a lead that it would uh, otherwise prefer to check raise as a more robust um, piece of equity. So it's choosing to lead with hands that benefit a little bit more from protection. That's what I'm saying, yeah. I hope I wasn't too mumbly on that. You see that it's going to have some bluffs like nine seven and eight seven. That makes perfect sense. And it's extremely strong hands like 6-6 six, six and 5-5 five, five are leading a very slender amount of the time. Um, those are its very best hands and they will cover also for the bluffs. Um, you'd never wanna put yourself into a position where if you bet, every part of your range must fold, right? Because now you have an unprotected range. Right. So if we're going to have this leading range, this very slender leading range, we can, learn just at a glance from the solver by thinking about the qualities of the hands um, and looking down at four four three three and deuce deuce 
Well, these hands benefit from protection too. They're also, um, they don't want to be called. They are essentially bluffs. And you'll see this um, as a see bet too in many scenarios. And the reasoning is pretty clear. They don't want to check raise. They don't want to check call, but they're still rate to be ahead or they function as a bluff against, uh, I don't know, deuce, deuce might fold out three, three, right? Yeah, they're, they're value betting, but don't want calls. Yeah. Okay. So there's, you know, so now we've spent a little time with uh, the lead and we're beginning to learn something. Let's uh, go over to the check, which is going to be 93% of the time. And so now it's on the in position player and we finally get to um, our nut advantage, range advantage situation. Now it looks like to me that um, our bets are just about 50%, slightly less than 50%. Yes. Uh, were you surprised by that? A little bit. I, I figured there may be because, of course, the, the solver's clairvoyant. So I figured that what I might see would be fewer bets from the imposition player because that imposition player has no two pair no bottom set, no middle set. So while it does have top set and the top end value hands like ace king, it should be vulnerable to check raises, balance check raise both for value and bluffs uh, because it doesn't have any of those other netted hands. Yeah, that's a very reasonable explanation. And even though we does have the nuts and does have very strong hands. Remember, we're concentrated to an 11% range versus a 30% range. We're still not quite even at 50% uh, bets. And if we look down here, now this becomes a little more useful to us. We look down at the expected value of um, player two, uh, the imposition player's range. And that's just under 5.5. It's 5.48 out of an 8.5 pot, right? So more than 50% of the pot does belong to the in-position player. If we go back to one, we see that EV of his range is 3.23. So even though we're not even betting 50% of the time, because of the conditions you set, because we don't have enough hands, we're still, not able, we're still not able to sell realization to the other opponent. And so you figured that out. You kind of predicted that. You weren't, you weren't, you, you, it's not true. You weren't entirely surprised, right? No, I thought it might be lower. The actual percentage might be lower. You know, right. I thought it might be 30% or 35%. Right. But it's certainly, when you compare it to other situations that are more advantageous for the imposition player, it's, it's really on the low side. So this is how we learn stuff. Let's look at the combos here. I don't want to go through every street or every combination, of course. And I don't want to spend 24 hours on this. But let's look at what's going on because it's convenient. This 11% range is so small, we can see the logic happen right before our eyes. Let's look at the bets across uh, from left to right, all the aces. Notice how the bets decline as the kicker declines, obviously ace-ace is a bet. Ace-king suited, a little bit of checking. Ace-queen suited, ace-jack, ace-ten, all the way down to ace-deuce suited, it becomes almost entirely a check. Now, 
explain that. Well, uh, the as you as the kicker value decreases, the holding's ability to retain will go down if faced with a raise. So, in order to realize the equity of top pair weak kicker against a broad range, I think that the uh, the solver is is checking to to retain, trying to get to showdown fairly inexpensively, and right. not get blown off not get blown off its equity. Yeah, we're seeing retention in action. Ace Ace always retains its equity. I mean, it's the nuts. It can sell to any hand, and it simply declines from there. We look down uh, at the uh, the bluffs, such as King Queen suited, you know, King Jack suited, King Ten suited. Um, it's not betting all of them, and I think that's important to see. Uh, we're, we're not able to completely bluff these natural you know, blocker bluffs, probably because uh, of the problem we're having that we will be facing uh, so much continuation. And all we have to do, for instance, on the next street is say, well, say we bet, what does one, you know, go back to one and what, look, what is it doing looking at all these combos? Well, it's calling a very high amount of time. It's calling nearly 50% of the time. If you just look up at the calls. Yeah. That's a high number of calls. So we simply can't be bluffing that much in under all this scenario. And it would take a lot of time to figure out everything, but you doing this work is what's going to help you figure things out. Uh, but just looking at that, looking at that split between, hmm, well, why can't I bluff this perfect bluffing hand like King Queen? All we have to do is look at the, the response and find out that, ah, well, it's calling so often, this is going to become unprofitable. Yeah, and, and Chris, I, one of the things I thought was really interesting was understanding why that is. The out of position player has a large number of aces. They have all of the suited aces except for ace-king, ace-queen suited, and all of the unsuited aces except for ace-king, which again is something I see uh, in real life. And that allows it to call it a high percentage. If the board were king of hearts, six of clubs, five of clubs instead with these ranges, mm -hmm. the out-of-position player would have to fold way more of uh, his range. Yeah, beautiful. I mean, that's exactly like, right. Like I said, the the um, out-of-position player has every garbage ace available to him. And I remember, you know, before I even touched one of these things, um, learning about that the hard way uh, in, in live games, where just because a board had an ace on it doesn't mean I get to see that like I would online so much, especially against all these calling stations, because they simply always had a seven. And yeah, I learned to barrel um, you know, and hopefully get them off that sometimes, but that's also kind of a futile act. Uh, they, they didn't always, they don't always, uh, V-pip to fold, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I, th I think, uh, in, in some games, King low, low and Queen low, low are, are more advantageous for the imposition range razor than Ace low, low or Ace mid. 
Right. Okay, I just want to point out one more thing while you're while we're going over this, and that's how the pairs are handled. Remember the in position player opened sevens through aces, and if we look at the aces, they're always bet, and then immediately almost all of the kings check, right? Yes. Uh, that's that's something that Andrew Seidman figured out a long time ago. And you know, maybe back in the day, or maybe sometimes people just want to bet in a mixed strategy very, very strong hands. Well, I've got kings, I need to, to bet even on an ace-high board. And what he understood was that it retained its value better as a check because it's not vulnerable to anything that isn't already out there. And the solver does that. And the reason I'm focusing on this as well is as, we, as you go down, all of these pairs, look how more of them become bets, right? Queens, yes. jacks, tans, why? get uh, more protection right so this this tension between um denial and realization is always what's happening in, in poker these hands need some aspect and we're literally seeing a fractional aspect of protection queen queen doesn't want to see a king on the turn jack jack doesn't want to see a king or a queen 10, 10, 9, 9, well, down to 8, 8, you've got real problems. And they all start to be bet very frequently. Yes. Now, and that's why you're doing this, so that we're not preparing, we're not going to the game hoping to see, oh, my God, when it's ace of hearts, six of clubs, five of clubs, I'm going to knock the living shit out of them. It's so that you can take these principles into your game and uh, maybe make a, a, better, a good decision every, every now and then. Agreed. Cool. Um, I think I'll set this aside for now because we're rambling on and uh, we probably want to talk a little bit about uh, something else that we do together, which is a lot of fun, and that's play in the out of position poker club game. I threw you, I threw you to the wolves, right? Yeah. I'll let you talk about it, but I'll just remind the listener, I do host a deep stack small stakes, it's like NL20, but you know we put up to 500 big blinds as our buy-in as a practice game. Uh, it's, you know, it's raked as minimally as we can, and you know we fight it out and try to improve. And uh, we do this every Wednesday and every Sunday at 6 p.m. Uh, PST. Uh, contact me if you wanna get in. Um, it's, you have to introduce yourself. But uh, it's a lot of fun, and I'll give you the club number. It's 505-400, 505-400. And you can find all the details on my site, or you can email oop.pppclub at gmail.com. That's oop.pppclub, three Ps, at gmail.com. So how's it been playing with this all? It's been great. One of the challenges of trying to practice new things at one, two is the slow pace of the game. Oh, yeah, enough. You know, so you, you get what, 25 hands an hour, maybe 20, 30, probably about 25 hands an hour. And I really only play, we say, once a week. So, you know, 100 hands, 150 hands, and it's pretty easy to be carded through that many hands. It's or pretty easy to have a couple of 
coolers or a couple of bad beats that drastically affect your night. Um, but it's just volume wise, it's hard to, to practice these new things. So I, I have played in the club game and it's really great. The, the stakes make it so that mistakes aren't punished true, too dramatically, but people are still playing rationally as far as I can tell. And you get a much higher volume of hands and you face situations, you face spots that I don't think I would ever face at one, two. In fact, I probably wouldn't face in the Meadows two, five, because I'm not going to be playing against people like Porter. No, right. Now you're, you're playing against uh, other students. You're playing against me. You're playing against a couple pros. Uh, you know, it's tough. Um, Jason has said it's, I don't know, maybe he's exaggerating, but it's 10 times harder than 2-5. Sounds a little bit uh, over the top, but, you know, it's not going to be an easy game. And um, I want to say one thing about it, though, because it comes up, comes up in the form sometimes, and the hands look a little crazy uh, to certain live players. But I want to remind them that it's not the bare games that are normal. Poker isn't supposed to be played so miserably tight. And I'm not saying this game is normal either, but things are possible, especially with depth, that maybe you're not thinking about. Uh, the, in other words, what's normal is a little bit relative. That's just a message to a special someone out there who always has a problem with me. Okay, <laughs> where was I? <laughs> uh, not Tell sure. Tell me about a hand. You had a hand. Yeah. Yeah, you had a hand in this game that you said you misplayed, but I don't know that you did, buddy. Oh, I, th I thought I was reverting back to bad habits, but uh, it'll be a good, be a fun hand to talk about. The other thing I want to say about the club okay. game is, is, is that you get to see construction and action, which is pretty neat. Ready uh, for the hand? Yeah, walk us through it. I've got the player open. I'm watching it. Tell, tell us what happens. Go through the entire thing and then... Uh, and then we'll walk through it together. All right, so it's five-handed, and uh, it's a 10-cent, it's a 20-cent game. I'm the effective short stack. I have 250 big blinds, if I'm doing my math right. Yeah, gee, short stacking again. Yep, only 250 big blinds. And uh, I'm on the button, and there's a, a raise to 75 cents from, I believe it's Patrick. He is under the gun plus one. That's a slightly larger raise size than has been standard in this game. But uh, I'm on the button with eight, seven of diamonds, and I decide to call, which I think, given that I have you, and Porter to my left in the blinds is not the best idea. Ah, we'll talk about it. Just tell us the action. All right. So I call and then Persuadio, as he's been doing all night, three bets to $3.40 and then Porter folds. Uh, the initial razor Patrick calls the 340. And then I, of course, call as well uh, in position with a hand uh, that 
I want to see a flop with, and we're deep enough that that calling the three bet isn't too problematic. Cool. Okay. So you might hear some funny sounds as I review this. Um, yep. There you go. This game makes you know little online sounds that you can't live without. Uh, so what's the SPR that you basically create here? So it's an SPR of four and a half to one. Okay. So not a lot of room to maneuver, but you know, you have a valuable hand and position. But let's start at the very beginning. You face a raise uh, from Tacitus, Patrick, and uh, you decide to call. You know, 8-7 suited wants depth. Uh, the, the question here isn't whether that's a good call or not. The question is, do you have any protection in this range? Is this a good flat for you because you know you're going to get three bet or squeezed a lot. So like, yes. what are you doing to protect yourself here? Well, I'd, I'd also occasionally be flatting strong hands. Say with this, okay. at some percentage, aces, kings, ace, king, queens. Okay. Top. I mean, I would avoid flatting aces because aces want to build the pot, but you know, flatting, you know, a percentage of kings and queens, some of your ace kings, you know, one of the values of ace kings, you get it so often, an ace queen, you get these hands and they have surprising amount of value, especially in terms of blocking the strong hands that your other opponents can have. When you back raise, you know, they immediately give you equity, they give you bluffs, and they give you something to work with against all this aggression that's happening in a, in a true tough game. So think yes. about which combinations you want to do it with. So I don't have a problem with your flat. I'm just, you know, I wonder, I just want to make sure you're not lying to yourself about, you know, what happens every time, you know, are you, are you taking an action? But it sounds like you are. Yeah. I think, I guess my, con my concern or my uh, criticism of the play was the high likelihood that you would squeeze. I think a three bet would have also been a good choice here. Hundred percent. I mean, I wouldn't. Haha, it's funny that I say hundred percent. I wouldn't three bet it at a hundred percent. No, but a hundred percent, it would make a good three bet. Okay. Now, Tacitus didn't open from under the gun. Um, you know, he there. He's opening from the effective cutoff in this five-handed game. Yeah. Good point. Should have a fairly wide range. Uh, I know you're deeper, but you've got a very robust hand that's, uh, you know, depending on the sizings, it, it can even call a four bet. I mean, I know I'm a looser player than others, but taking, knocking out the blinds is very valuable. So when I say it's a good flat, it doesn't mean I, you should flat 100% of the time. I mean, certainly you can flat. Uh, but putting in the three bet is going to be really important, I think, at least in the way I think about the game. Yeah. Okay. Um, the problem with flatting and then calling is uh, really apparent, like right away. And I asked you the SPR immediately yes. because that is the problem. Okay. Uh, this hand wants depth, and it doesn't want depth uh, for a single reason. It wants depth for a multiplicity of reasons. It wants to be able to realize its equity. It wants to be able to bluff if it needs to, and it needs room to do all these things. Uh, so when you create this 4.5 SPR pot, you are really kind of stuck 
with realizing your equity. And that's going to help guide your actions here. So tell us about the flop, which is uh, 10 of hearts, seven of clubs, nine of hearts. Uh, What happens? So it's a really good flop uh, for my hand. I flop uh, some showdown value, middle pair, and then flop an open and in straight draw. And you check and then Patrick checks. Mm -hmm. And this is where, uh, particularly given the SPR and the things that we've talked about, uh, my primary motivation should be to retain my equity and not expose it to, to being denied. But f- for some unknown reason, probably because I'm reverting to bad habits, I decide to bet. Okay, so we'll address two things. We're going to address kind of a mental thing and we'll address a technical thing. I believe you when you say you have bad habits. If you've been playing one, two for 15 years, in addition to having a bad habit of playing poker, you probably have a lot of bad poker habits. Yeah, I do. Uh, Betting when check two is not a thing, okay? One of the primary things I have to do as a coach is to shake out a lot of bad habits. I want you to think instead about the ranges of your opponents, yourself, and how they interact with the board. Um, Because I believe you could tell yourself that this is a good bet, but there's so many things going on. It will take 30 seconds to think it through. Um, Tell me about the ranges of Persuadio and Tacitus and yourself. Well, I, I did think that this flop favored my range particularly um, compared to your What are the hands? Prove it to me. What are the hands that you have that flat Tacitus and then call the squeeze? What, what do you have here that interacts with this board so well that, that sort of like says, hey, I can bet this pot? Well, I have, I have middle suited connectors. I have pocket sevens, pocket nines, maybe pocket tens. So I, I would have a lot of two pair and a lot of sets and then a lot of combo uh, draws and draws and combo hands with a, a pair and a draw. Okay. Um, everything from queen 10 down to, you know, six, five suited has some interaction with the board. Yeah. And all those hands might flat. Um, the problem with your argument is that 10 should be a three bet. Yes. Jack should be a three bet, nine should be a three bet, and really sevens should often be a three bet too. Um, so I don't know from my perspective that I'm going to be respecting um, the idea that you have uh, a greater portion of the hands than say Tacitus does, who opened and called. Um, yes. he, he has nine sevens, tens, and he's never folding them to the three bet. So I would say he actually has far more sets than you and strong hands and may even have a hand like Jack eight suited. Um, can you have a hand like Jack eight suited? Possibly. I would say it should still be three bet. So you're left with a lot of hands like deuces through sixes, uh, you know, maybe nine, eight, 10, nine, uh, 10, nine seems like a really, uh, a hand that you really might have because it's dominated by uh, you know jack 10 and ace king and it makes a worse straight so that rather than three betting it might want to call uh eight seven um pocket eights maybe uh that you didn't three bet 
I would, so I would just be very cautious and think about, well, maybe I'm representing aces because I was the squeezer and I have kings and I'm going to check, right? Yes. And then Tacitus uh, checks. Um, he could bet there. Um, but that doesn't happen. The, the point to you is just because something he doesn't try to sell the pot to you by betting doesn't mean his range advantage goes away. Right. Okay, so now that's sort of the technical thing. And I've addressed the mental thing of you're it's drilled into you. Well, if someone checks, they're weak. And so you bet, you know, that's kind of like classic goofball strategy. But I want to talk even more in depth about the fact that you have a certain kind of equity and you don't always bet your whole range, right? Right. Let's say you had seven, nine here. It would make a better bet than say 10, nine. Just by the argument, we just went through the solver for the same reason. Yeah. Seven, nine would be more vulnerable than 10, nine. 10, nine could check and go to the turn completely disguised and uncapped. Or if you actually had Jack eight, it could check. Um, it certainly would make a better bet let's say just on the principle that we saw, sometimes we want to mix up our strategy, all those hands would make good plays either way. Eight seven has a particular problem here. When it makes it straight or improves, what can happen on 10 of hearts, seven of clubs, nine of hearts? Well, it can make it straight, but still not be the nuts. Well, not only can it not be the nuts, I mean, the flush can come in, right? Yeah. So you can make like the second nuts and also you can just be dead. <laughs> right. Um, so when you bet here, you yeah. turn this hand into a bluff. I mean, it is a bluff. You have bottom pair. Yeah. But you're turning a hand um, that has showdown value. It could be the best hand against ace king, ace queen. Um, you're turning this showdown value hand into a bluff. So that's a merge error, um, possibly. Or maybe it's so valueless because of the hearts that you want to do it. Maybe your range is so composed of stronger hands you don't mind uh, burning up this hand as a bet full. But you told me you flopped well. So which is it? Is it a good flop for you or a bad flop for you? Uh, given the pre-flop action and the opponents, it's a decent flop uh, for me. Okay. But it puts me in the merch. It put you, you, you split that right down the middle. What are you, a lawyer? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I don't know what you do for a living. Um, let's see. Uh, the point is you were right in your first evaluation. Your hand has value. You don't want to burn it up. You do have other hands that can be bluffs. Uh, maybe there's a gut shot here we could find over cards. Uh, they can be bet and folded. Uh, the other thing is if you bet, there's no room for you to play because of the SPR to get this all the way back to the start. Yeah. So you look at the SPR and you say, how does my hand retain its value? Is it through selling realization by betting to our opponents? Or is it by checking and using position wisely and now turning this into a two street game where I get to see the next card, if it's a heart, you know, if the board pairs, I get to see having been checked to by these players who may well be planning a check raise, I counter their strategy by playing 
in position and realizing my equity properly. Uh, so that's all I want to say about that spot. But you decide to bet. And you, so you make kind of the low stakes error of just betting when you shouldn't. And what happens? Well, I get check raised, of course. Uh, use okay, 3x. by who? So the small blind, that would be you. Okay. And then, <laughs> and then, even better, uh, Patrick, the original raiser, shoves all in for $66. Okay, cool. So we've got sort of the, you get, you get check raised twice. Yeah, I get double <laughs> on check raised. You get double check raised on one street. That's how, that's how difficult a spot this is for you. And you have to throw it away, right? Yeah. You can't gamble here uh, with the wrong 8-7. If you had 8-7 of hearts, uh, it's go time. But you don't have that. You have 8-7 of diamonds. Um, so the PFR me uh, probably makes a loose check race here, identifying uh, maybe Tacitus should be leading and that you are trying to steal from the button with a range that maybe isn't as strong. Um, I don't remember what I had here. I could certainly have anything like a 10 or better uh, trying to uh, gain thin value and protection. Um, but it doesn't matter because Tacitus, who does have the range advantage here uh, and <laughs> induced a bet from you that he probably shouldn't have been able to predict, he could have bet here, um, now uh, slams the door on both of us and we both fold. Yeah. <laughs> Brutal. How did you do this to us? It all starts with preflop. Okay. Though, though we've we've uh, we've determined that a call is is okay here as well as a three bet. But certainly betting on the flop was a disaster. I would like you to to mix it up between a three bet and a call. Okay. Uh, preflop. I think the call. Uh, in position is the only spot you could call given the short SPR with 8-7. I think you should check back the flop because you have better, more polar bets uh, to make in position. Ones yes. that can more happily fold or ones that can more happily call or jam. And you should have been able to see that next card uh, when he, uh, when Tacitus uh, jams it there, um, and he's very likely to have a hand like an overpair uh, that is willing to stack off against my range, a set, or a very strong draw that, you know, coats, coats your draw. You know, a hand yeah. like queen-jack of hearts would make a lot of sense. King-queen of hearts. Uh, maybe queen-jack of clubs. Things like that that have you in very bad shape. And so you have to surrender your equity. You want to see at this SPR, and this is the point that I really want to make, you don't want to commit yourself here. Yeah. And you don't want to put in aggressive dead money by betting. Okay. Well, that was fun. Um, I think we're going to have to save your other hand uh, for maybe another time because we've gone on for so long. Well, was that useful? What did you think? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was, that was fun. Okay. Well, well, we'll we'll see you in the game, and I'm really glad that you're around. And I'll see you when I get to Portland. And for those of you who want to join us in this ridiculous fun game, I gave you the information. 
I'll give it to you one more time. Email uh, my friend Porter at oop.pppclub. God, this name is so awful. At gmail.com. You can just find it on the website or club 505-400 and join us for some fun deep stack poker that will only cost you really a few hamburgers unless you really suck. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Greg. I appreciate you coming on. Any, any last words you have shout out to family or, you know, chickens or dogs? No, uh, just thanks for having me. And I really appreciate uh, the effort you put towards building a community. And when I get a little further with this solver stuff, I will post in the back room and hopefully start a discussion. So thanks again. Wonderful. All right. I will sign off. I want to thank Dean, especially for his patience with me while I've been uh, away from the podcast and you, the listener, glad to be back. We have some more exciting interviews coming up, I promise. All right. I am off. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. And thank you for tuning in to the Poker Zoo podcast. Find us at perswadio.nl or simply do a search for the Poker Zoo. Also available on iTunes, uh, any of the Android aggregators, Google Podcasts. There's actually a place to subscribe, a little subscribe button right below each of the blog posts that contain uh, the episodes. So I'm not even going to give out the Zoo hotline because nobody calls. Uh, But if you do have something you would like to say, something clever or response to something on the show, just record an audio file and send it to thepokerzoo at gmail.com or persuadio at gmail.com or therealdmartin at gmail.com. All of them will get to me somehow and I'll put it on the show. This week's barbecue adventure is actually Montreal smoked meat, which is kind of like pastrami, only it's dry cured and then smoked for nine hours or so and then finished off in the steamer so we had the smoking done last night we're off to uh, do the steaming sometime today and enjoying a great uh, somewhat like a pastrami a new york deli style pastrami sandwich and it'll be montreal smoked meat and with that enjoy your time at the tables and we'll see you next time Here's a poker zoo.